to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of Ordinary Men by Christopher R. Browning, the Reserve Police Battalion 101 and the Final Solution in Poland. Mate, I, honestly, I don't know how you found this book. I hadn't heard of it before, but we better give it a quick warning. This is not going to be a, the easiest or most enjoyable of episodes in the in the sense that it deals with a lot of dark content, but it's going to reveal an important aspect of human nature. We've had a few emails from people saying they listen with their kids in the car. This is probably one to, to listen by yourself. If this is a movie trailer, we'd classify it as violent and disturbing themes plus adult content. It was obviously a very wild time in human history, the Second World War, and if you think about Hitler, early days in the war, he was kind of kicking ass, went over to France, North Africa, and was dominating there. But then he also started a war to the east with Russia, so he had to deploy a certain amount of resources that way, so he was pushing on both sides. And then on top of that, he went to execute what he called the final solution, where he was looking to exterminate all the Jews within the population. So he had a finite amount of resources to complete three real ambitious goals. All of what you would call, I guess, the traditional soldiers, all the people who were had trained up for their whole lives to become soldiers and fight in wars, they were already fighting the wars. So what Hitler had to do was find other people to do the final solution. He was looking for your, uh, you know, Joe the local butcher, Jim the primary school teacher, maybe Uncle George who was uh, used to work at the supermarket. These were the types of people that they had to get on board to fight all of the wars that they were trying to fight at the same time. Yeah, they were truck drivers, dock workers, construction workers, machine operators, all sorts of things. So they were basically people like just you and me, right? Like we're, me and you, we're not a, a killer. If we were so aggressive, we'd probably be in the army right now, right? Mm. So the people in the general cop population were required to commit probably the most heinous of crimes across the whole Second World War and that was to execute the millions of Jews. What this book deals with is looking at how did... I guess you, what you call your normal everyday people, people you wouldn't expect to be cold-blooded killers, how did they convince or, or get all of these people on board to commit some of those most heinous acts in, in history? And it's not looking at this in like a, a judgy sort of a way, thinking, you know, how could these people possibly do this? But looking more from the perspective of, hey, if these people were to do something like this, what would we have done during that time? Yeah, absolutely. So you got one part of them doing it to, to them, but there's also always some kind of element of, of choice like these people just committed brutal crimes and you got to think reading this book under the certain same set of circumstances would you be the one doing the same thing and you know I think reading this book the answer would probably be a yes so through this book and this episode we're looking at one very short period of time at the start of 1942 80% of the holocaust victims were still alive but by the end of 1942 80% of the holocaust victims had perished so we're not looking at a gradual, slow, incremental program. We're looking at one massive offensive during the middle of all these other wars where they've had to get the general population to commit some of these atrocities. What the book is, we're looking at the interrogations of 210 men out of what is called the Reserve Police Battalion 101. So these are your normal people who have committed some of these monstrosities. So in this episode, we're going to look at our first act that they did, which was the Josephia massacre, and look at all the influences that turned them into just your everyday people, into professional cold-hearted killers. The night before their first task, the Reserve Police Battalion 101 were given a whole lot of extra ammunition and additional boxes were loaded onto all their trucks as well. 
And they were headed for their first major action, though the men really had no idea what they were in for. There's a few rumors floating around, but no one had really been told exactly what to expect. All they were told was saying, in the morning, you're going to be woken up and there's going to be some major action involving the entire battalion. Some captain told their men that this is going to be an extremely interesting task awaiting them for the next day. Some were saying to the truck drivers, hey, you guys are lucky that you don't have to come here because you're not going to get to see what's going to happen. And then another said, tomorrow, I don't want to see any cowards. So a convoy of trucks moved out of the dark toward the village of Josephau and it was a mere 30 kilometers away and it's a typical Polish village of modest white houses and shore roofs and amongst its inhabitants were 1,800 Jews. The village was totally quiet when the men stepped down from their trucks and assembled in a bit of a half circle around their commander, Major Wilhelm Trapp, who was a 53-year-old career policeman. The time had come for Trapp to give his men their assignments. So Trapp here, he was pale and nervous and he was choking with tears in his eyes and he fought visibly to control himself as he spoke. And he said the battalion was to perform a frighteningly unpleasant task. And this assignment was not to his liking. Indeed, it was regrettable, but the orders came from the highest authorities. If it would make their task any easier, they should remember that in Germany, the bombs were falling on their women and children. So then he turned to the matter at hand. He said that the Jews had instigated the American boycott that had damaged the German economy for decades. And these Jews had specific links to high-powered people here in this village of Josephau. The battalion had now been ordered to round up all of these Jews. The male Jews of working age, they were to be separated and taken to a work camp. The remaining Jews, the women, the children, the elderly, they were to either be shot on the spot or taken out to the woods to be shot. After explaining all of this, he gave everybody an extraordinary offer. He said if any of the older men did not feel up to the task, they could all step down if they like. There was an awkward pause there. Nobody wanted to be the first one, but we've got one bloke, Otto Julius Schimke. He stepped forward and he said, he said this, is not, this is not for me. What a legend. That's after a that's big a, number. That's a ballsy move out of 500 people for one bloke to do it. After that, a couple more did. We're talking less than 10 people in total who stepped forward and the other 490 plus remained. Okay, so they've been given their task and you know they were off to do what they were requested to do. But the skipper, the captain, Trap, he spent most of his day in town either in a schoolroom, converting to his headquarters or at the homes of the Polish mayor and the local priests or in the marketplace on the road to the forest, but he just didn't really go anywhere near where all the action was going down. One policeman reported that uh, Major Trapp, he was never there. We men were upset about that and said he couldn't bear it either. So his distress was really secret to no one in town. At the marketplace, people heard him say, oh God, why did I have to be given those orders? And others mentioned that he was pacing back and forth with his hands behind his back. And other people said he was just sitting there alone in his room and crying. Mm-hmm. And that was the, the captain who'd been, for decades, he'd been the captain of a police force. So you think he's somewhat closer than some of these normal Joe Blows, the, the butcher who didn't have to do these kinds of things. But even he was obviously visibly distraught by what was about to happen. But back to the, the troops, while, uh, while Captain Trapp was, was, was crying, uh, the orders were given to his men and they had to start going out on their mission. 
They found Jews. They were they were pulling him out of their houses. If anyone was immobile or, or refused to walk, they were shot on the spot. The air was filled with screams and gunfire. You could hear everything throughout this small town and people were gradually being brought to the marketplace in the center of town where they could be divided up and sent on their way. It's interesting, you know, reading the interrogations. Obviously, there was a lot of policemen who shot people, but after the fact, only two actually admitted to having mm. shot people. And yeah. Them out. I think it's it's sort of like, you know, if you a lot of people say, yeah, I knew that, that bullying was going on or I used to be bullied in school, but no one actually says I bullied someone in school. Mm, yeah. But a lot of people say, yeah, there was lots of bullying going on. That's a great analogy. And I think uh, like in your brain, you might just wrestle it outwards to the point where you actually genuinely believe and you alter actually what happened in your history. Mm. Well, yeah, obviously there was a lot of shooting going on and out of the, the 200 plus people who got interrogated, they said, yeah, there was a lot of shooting happening, but only less than 1% actually admitted, yeah, I shot someone. That's it's a it's an interesting rationalization that our brain plays tricks on us. Yeah, another trick they, they said that after the fact, they said that the elderly and sick infants were not amongst the ones shot, but you know, in historical details show there was people in this mm. category who were shot. So by this point... Uh, the village had been sweeped. All the Jews were taken to the marketplace. There was about 300 or so young men of fit, working, healthy age. They were taken off on trucks to go to the work camps and everybody else was then rounded up to be taken to the woods. So, they were sent out on, on marching orders and, and you know, the one group who were, say, a few groups behind the first one, they heard a few of the, the shots going off in the woods and obviously they were starting to catch on to what was happening mm. and starting to get a little bit worried. And the Jews, they were ordered to all lie down in a row and there was an equal number of policemen at this stage. So, they were standing face to face to who would be their victims. And the policemen, they stepped behind them, placed their bayonets on their backbone and above the shoulder blades as they were earlier instructed and they were told to fire in unison. Mm. And because it was that we mentioned this was their very first time. So, a lot of them probably hadn't even really shot a gun before, especially not at a real live human being. A lot of the times when they they tried to shoot them in the head, they'd either miss a little bit or there'd be brains and skull and blood splattering everywhere. So, they devised this neck shot where they got them all to lie down and shoot them in the back of the neck because they found that that was, I guess, the the, the most straightforward, the, the lowest risk option to get the job done quickly. And that was, that was it for the rest of the day for them. They just, just had constantly more and more people walked out to the woods and they proceeded without interruption until nightfall. And by the end of the day, due to the continual shooting, the men had lost track of the number that actually killed. It got to the point where the, the woods that, where they were killing people were so full that they couldn't even find a, a, a spare spot to tell the next person to lie down. After the, the day had been completed, everybody was back in their, their barracks and it was pretty depressed. There was a lot of angry people, a lot of bitter. Everyone was visibly shaken up. That would be a pretty wild day for your first day on the job. Yeah, they uh, pulled out the booze and everyone drank heavily, just trying to drown their sorrows and trying to really just get rid of that guilt. And Trapped, he was the one who kept bringing out the booze and just he kept placing the responsibility on the higher-ups. It's mm. higher-ups. It's not your fault, mate. It's, it's the orders from the higher-ups. Yeah, but all this booze, it, it really didn't help wash away the horror and that sense of, of grief that pervaded the entire barracks. Trap just basically said to the man, look, don't, don't talk about this. The people who were driving the trucks who hadn't witnessed it, they didn't want to hear about it. The people that did the deeds, they didn't want to talk about it. Yeah, but it, after the fact, all the repression, it couldn't stop the nightmares from that day onwards for the rest of their lives. So it was a pretty disturbing chapter uh, the author now gives a, a, a few reflections on the, the aftermath here. He gives a few takeaways as to 
to how and why this all happened and some of the reactions of the people who were part of it. So as we said at the start of the chapter, there was 12 who instinctively seized the moment and said, shit, this is going to be this mm. is going to be wild. Get me out of here. So they stepped out, right? So they're absolved of responsibility. And what, in terms of percentage terms, man, that's a very small number. It's mm. like a couple of percent or something. For others, they were kind of, I'd say they would be in shock. They were standing there and they're looking around. Most of their mates aren't moving forward. So they're just going to stand there. And for them, it really hadn't sunk in exactly mm. what they were going to do. So there was this other group, right, who rather than getting in the shooting, they throughout the day found any excuse or reason to actually just not take part in it. And they hid behind the trucks in the marketplace. They might just go into someone's house and hide Mm. under the beds or any kind of reason just to get out of the shooting. Some Mm. actually shot past their victims constantly. So, you know, they looked like they were helping the cause Mm. of the team. And some just kept searching through the houses they they knew that had nobody in it. Mm. So the ones who went ahead and that didn't quit, they said things like, you know, why would you dare lose face before all of your troops? Uh, You know, I I shot in the first place because I didn't want to be seen as a coward. People would say things like, oh, if I stepped out, nothing would have changed. Their fate was sealed. The Jews were going to die anyway. So it didn't really matter if it was me or not. So there was all these justifications and rationalizations as to why they didn't quit at the start. But as you said, a lot of them quit without quitting they did all those things they they did you know they checked every room three times so that they didn't have to go to the marketplace and be put on firing duty yeah there'd be some forces of human nature really compelling him to carry out these tasks and after the fact they'd rationalize and justify the reason for their behavior i think the worst by far rationalization that i've ever come across in any story (laughs) of any book in history of anything was a 35 year old metal worker and he said I made the effort and it was possible for me to shoot only children. It so happened that the mothers led the children by hand. My neighbor shot the mother and I shot the child that belonged to her because I reasoned with myself that after all, without its mother, the child could live no longer. It was soothing to release the child, unable to live without their mothers. Yeah, that's an absolute wild justification. If you uh, say, uh, the mother's been shot by my mate next door, well... It's just the right thing for me to do to kill the child now. Mm. Well, it, it, it says a lot, man, I think about that extreme rationalization. It makes it much easier to understand all the other day-to-day rationalizations that we see everywhere mm. and including in yourself. Like if you ask, how the hell can someone do something that seems pernicious in a context today? Just hearing that, you can totally understand where people can stoop to. So looking at the stats of who stepped out and who continued... So, as we said, about a dozen or so at the, at the start just absolved themselves of responsibility completely. But in the end, only 10 to 20% of the people got out of the obligations through hiding and, and things like that. So, really, the vast majority were the ones who got, got out there and, and made all these shootings and killed the Jews. So, despite that evening not wanting to talk about it and the terrible feeling that they all had as a group, they continued on with the, the assignments that were, they were given So after this intense first mission, the Reserve Police Battalion 101 was sent on a number of other missions. In August, they cleared out 11,000 Jews off to deportation. Uh, A few weeks later, they went to a village where they killed another 300 in cold blood. In September, they had this massive event where they killed 4,500 and then deported 15,000 to go to the extermination camps. 
and by mid-November, the Reserve Police Battalion had racked up an execution of about 6,500 Polish Jews, plus they deported another 42,000 to the gas chambers. This is just from a, that small group of about 500 or so men. But still, their role in the mass murders were not finished. So now we're looking towards the end of the, the final task of the Reserve Police Battalion 101. And I think where it, what's most interesting is their difference in psychology juxtaposed you know, to their first night after their first task. And at this stage, they were just requested to have the region Jew-free at all costs. So you know, it, it escalated to the point where all Jews they came across were to be shot on the spot. And at this stage, a lot of the Jewish community, they'd escaped and tried to find any way to hide they can to just survive. So they went out into the woods, they dug all kinds of trenches and bunkers below the ground, maybe hit up the, the top of trees. So they were finding these unique hiding spots to survive. So once they'd cleared all these towns, as you said, six and a half thousand they'd executed, another 40 plus thousand they'd deported to the gas chambers. They went for a second and a third sweep through all of these towns to make sure there was nobody left. A lot of the times they'd go on these forest patrols, they'd go on what they'd call Jew hunts. They were searching for anybody they could. Sometimes they'd go through a whole forest, they wouldn't find anything and then they'd sweep back around and they found this one little, like a, a little chimney, a little breathing tube sticking out through the dirt and that's where they found these underground bunkers that they'd built. Any Jews that they found would be shot on the spot. With these small patrols hunting down all the surviving Jews, the Reserve Police Battalion 101 almost came full circle to their original experience at Josephale. If you think about it, the night before their first task, they were a bit nervous about what was to come. When they were told, they were a bit perplexed. But by now, they'd gone through months of killing and hurting of masses of people. And they were at the point where they had a sense of detachment of the fate of the Jews. And for them, now deporting and the shooting was unshakable. And rather than being repulsed by the task they were given, the Jew hunt this time was a lot different. Rather than everyone being ordered, they were asked for volunteers. And it's a lot different, right, when you have to put your hand up to do something rather than just conform to something. And for volunteers, there was never a shortage to go on these hunts. So after Joseph found those early shootings, the men returned to their quarters shaken and embittered. And they had no appetite. All they wanted to do was drown their sorrows and drink the night away. But now by this point, a few months later, they'd become callous, they'd become detached, they found some way to depersonalize all these things. The policemen recalled that they're actually sitting around the, the lunch table joking about all the experiences they'd had. They'd talk, they'd tell funny stories about how they were running through the jungle and they, they made this miraculous find. They were able to, to drag a few, few Jews out of their bunkers and, and find some sick and morbid ways to kill them. And they were all talking about these, these funny stories that they all had. So it was a complete shift in their psychology. So now we're moving towards the final task, which was in November 1942. And here the final solution culminated in the Great Harvest Festival Massacre. And it was the single largest German killing operations against the Jews of the entire war. And the total victim count was 42,000 Jews in the Loveland district. And mate, I think the connotations on Harvest Festival says a lot about this. They saw it as somewhat of a parade with, with a, a, as a positive, exciting, fun event. A mass killing of this scale, these 42,000 Jews in this district, requires a fair bit of planning and preparation. And what they did here was, this was the, the, the work camps, uh, and they got all these workers, all the Jewish workers that were prisoners here, to go out and dig trenches outside their camps. They had to dig these trenches that were three metres deep, one and a half metres wide. They dug in these zigzag patterns, and the Germans told them, this is actually for us to set up 
uh, some protection against air raids. So whenever the enemies fly over, we're going to be prepared with our weapons to to shoot back and shoot down the planes that fly over. But of course, that wasn't quite what they were doing it for. So the battalion, they played music on these very loud speakers and they marched the remaining 14,000 work Jews stark naked, hands behind their necks, straight to their deaths. So they were told to stand on the edge of their graves and then a few people with a machine gun just shot in a way so that all the bodies stacked in a very neat proper way to fit as many bodies into these graves. So these trenches that they dug uh, under the guise of being protection from air raids was actually just this mass grave for thousands and thousands of Jews. By the end of this period, we're talking nine or ten months here in total, the Reserve Police Battalion 101, their participation in the final solution had come to an end. The body count from these 500 ordinary men was over 83,000 Jews. So after their final tasks were complete, the Reserve Police Battalion went in different ways. Some went into the war against Russia to the east, and after that they were captured and were prisoners. Others went off and fought England and US and lost that battle. But a lot of them, they just went to their pre-war occupations after the war. They obviously went back as their factory workers or your local butcher or working in supermarkets or whatnot, but obviously very different people because of that intense period with the task that they were doing as Reserve Police Battalion 101. So now that we've had a a fair taste of this wild year, this progression from your primary school teacher or your car mechanic all the way through to the the brutal soldier who's volunteering to go on a Jew hunt through the woods to shoot people face-to-face in cold blood, we want to look at some of the reasons how this development occurred. How did these ordinary men become these brutal killers with only you know 12 people out of 500 volu- opting at the start to back out, only about 10 to 20% who then found loopholes to you know pretend like they were doing it but weren't actually killing, whereas the other 80% did become these brutal soldiers. How did this all happen? The first thing we're going to look at is brutalization. So in times of war itself, there's a lot of heinous crimes happening all the time, you look around and your, your cousin might have got shot in the war or your brother or your sister might have got killed. And over time, you get numb to the taking of human life and you might even get embittered over your own casualties and frustrated. And you might explode with hateful revenge at the first opportunity and especially looking at someone to point that revenge towards. Yeah, and if you think of, you think of the obvious thing of, say, the, the German cities being firebombed, that's one thing where you feel a threat against your own country also, there was the two or three decades where the, the higher-ups are saying, hey, the Jews caused this, the Jews have fucked our whole country. There's a, that's a, some kind of brutal way in which you can fight back. And what we saw in the book, that killing people eventually became routine and progressively easier and to the point where at the start it was painful and toward the end it was something that you'd look forward to do kind of like a game. Another big element of all this is the psychological explanations. There's a lot of work that shows that People, normal people like you and me, we kind of just slip into roles that society provides us. We're not really these proactive people who are making decisions. We kind of just are reactive to whatever circumstances are put onto us. The big psychological study he points to here is Phil Zimbardo's Stanford Prison Experiment. So that was where a bunch of you know, young 20-year-old uni students at Stanford, they were put through this psychological test. What they did was they randomly picked out people 
uh, 10% of the people were assigned the role of prison guards and the other 90% were assigned the role of prisoners. They put them in this simulated prison. They were locked in in classrooms and the prison guards were in charge of the prison with nobody else around. And it was wild to see in a matter of days how quickly those prison guards took on the role of authority and how, how brutally they treated their prisoners. Even though it was just random selection, normal uni students, everybody was exactly the same. It was just one person wore the uniform and held the keys and the other was locked in the room. Yeah, it's interesting that in this experiment, 20% emerged as the good guards who did not punish the other ones and actually did small favours for them. So, like a... a direct translation to the mm. same proportion in Reserve Police Battalion 101. And that was, uh, it was so wild, this experiment, that I think he was going to do it for like two or three weeks. And it was only like after day four, Big Zimbardo was like, man, I've got to pull this. This to is getting it. too wild too quickly. Another factor I think we can all relate to, to some extent, is self-interest and careerism. So during the interrogations, nobody rationalized based on their career considerations and and admitted that if they didn't go through these with these tasks, they were worried about what it would mean for their own personal careers. Yes, there were some in there who had just your, your typical civilian career, but there was also ones who were already in the police force in some kind of way or had aspirations to join the police force as a future career ambition. And obviously, the ones who had these future career ambitions, they were much more likely to commit the deeds. And I think this has a huge influence on a lot of people today. If you're, say, in certain industries that are causing problems for people or the planet or anything like that, if it's good for your career and you're making a lot of money and you're looking after your family, most of the time you could find a way to rationalize those reasons why you're doing it and then you kind of forget about the, the negative effects of your work you're doing. Yeah, and if you even think about it, if you're in a, say you're in a, a big pitch where you're pitching for new business and your boss says something that's massaged a little bit, that's maybe not 100% true and you, you, it raises a bit of a red flag in your mind, but it's not, a, it's not a blatant lie, so you don't actually correct it, you don't speak up against your boss. Or say you're, in a, you're working, as you say, in an industry where there's some kind of moral questions in you where you think maybe this isn't quite right, but in the bigger picture, I'm not going to be the one who quits my job or you know, leaks this to the media or gets fired because I spoke up to the boss. There are a lot of things that you just do and go along with the flow because you don't want to risk your own career. 100%. And like in this study, after the fact, toward the end of your, end of your career, you're probably going to be you're going to be the ones who never admits that you did any rationalization because <laughs> of your career. But deep down, you're doing it all, all the time. Another big element was authority. So we've talked about that before in terms of you know influence, that it's a big element of influence. But there's, there was a massive part of what was going on that was just people following orders and obeying authority. But it's a pretty weak excuse because they looked at after the fact that no single case in refusal to obey an order to kill unarmed civilians in these circumstances resulted in any serious punishment. Mm. So they imagined that they might get punished, but no one ever did. There's another story where I think that we've talked about before, Stanley Milgram. What there was, there was a person taking a test. Every time they got the wrong answer, the volunteer had to give them an electric shock. And there was a guy in a lab coat who was pretending to be the examiner here. And every time he said, no, nah, shock them more, shock them more, crank the power up, crank the power up. And thankfully, the person was actually an actor, the person doing the, the tests, and they'd be yelling and screaming in pain. They weren't actually being electrocuted, but they were doing all these wild cries and begging for help and begging for help but because there was a guy in a lab coat with a clipboard they kept cranking up that power 
yeah, he kind of looked reassuringly to the, the guy in the lab coat and, you know, they're in this position of authority so they must know what the <laughs> – so they kind of defer the level of acceptable punishment onto that person. Go, All right, they mm. must understand what, mm. it, what where, where I should pull the pin. And because of that, as an individual, they kept moving and moving forward and put the person through what they thought was extremely horrible pain of tears. I know there was even some people saying that afterwards that – so they'd hear the guy screaming, 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 and then they'd give them the one shock, which was beyond the lethal level, and the guy went quiet. And one of the, the people was saying he was checking the newspaper reports for the next two weeks to see if there was any, uh, to see if there was anybody who died, there was any death notices in the thing. So this, this really messed people up, but they did it because the guy in the lab coat told them to. Similar here is that they're saying, look, the Jews were responsible for you know, using America, blocking out Germany and screwing the economy. The whole country has been ruined by Jews. And because the higher-ups have said it, and you know, Von Trapp or whatever his name was, was just saying, hey, this is an order from the top. We've got to do it. So everybody obeyed the authorities. And the final factor we're going to look at is social conformity. So the battalion as a group, they've been ordered to kill the Jews, but each individual did not. So the 80 to 90% who went out there and carried out the orders they were kind of disgusted with the things they were doing and the other 10 to 20% who were chickening out, they thought, were not sharing the collective obligation that they were all told to do. So in their brains, it was kind of immoral to step out of line because you're going to let your mate go through these dirty tasks. Yeah, they said that on that first day back in Josephau, there was the the group of people that were lingering around the trucks and and hiding out so as not to be picked for the firing squad actually grew in number by the day because a few more people were backing out. But then the the vast majority of people that were still doing it, they were yelling out at them, calling them winklings, calling them shitheads, expressing all of their disgust and saying, what the hell are you guys doing? We're all in this together. We're meant to be doing this as one unit and you guys are chickening out. That's I think most people would cave for that social pressure for sure. Absolutely. And I've got a few mates in the army right now and uh, I don't know if they do this deliberately, but I know their officers and their higher-ups, they put such a focus on mateship in it. It's all Mm. about doing things for your mates, for your mates, for your mates and because you're doing that and you're collective to the group, it's probably easier to just commit tasks against another group of people for that reason because you're rationalizing it as you're doing it for others and not for yourself. So, there's an interesting cocktail of influences that maybe led him to do it. There's an interesting Netflix documentary that you got me onto. I forget the name of it. Maybe you'll you'll get me onto it. It was one of the magicians. Mm, Darren Brown. Darren Brown, that's right. And from the very start, they get this these group of people and then they set up all these certain circumstances and set of influences. And very similar to this book, I think. Mm. For at the very start, they're just normal people like you and me. Mm. And by the end of the evening, they're pushing someone off the top of a roof. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's it. It's an it's a wild one to watch. And it uses a lot of these same elements as well. Some of these psychological things and some of the, you know, conforming to the group and obeying authority, that all these things built up over time just to show that really anybody can fall victim to all of these different influences. And really the big question here is, look, there were ordinary men. They were just your regular Joe Blows on the street who did this sort of stuff. So if the men of the Reserve Battalion 101 could become killers under these circumstances, who wouldn't? What would you do during that time, basically? And I think everyone's answer to that without any introspection is like, surely I wouldn't wouldn't be that person. I wouldn't do it. No way. No way. (laughs) But But, (laughs) but. but if you put yourself under those certain circumstances, you being a human being with certain brain wire or sorry, exact brain wiring Mm. and cognitive abilities as those people within the battalion, the odds are that you actually would be one of those people. 
And man, it's a painful thought to really think, but I think it's very useful to learn that under the same set of circumstances, you would be that person. And I think through understanding that, it's probably the only time you can actually surpass that and see these Mm. dark abilities and dark places that you could possibly go. Yeah, it's pretty wild where he says, I guess to to simplify it, say, you know, 1% of people said, no, I'm not going to do this. About 10% of people said, uh, they didn't say that I'm not going to do it, but they found ways to not do it. But the other 90% or so actually went along with it anyway. Since January 1st, I've been reading The the Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday, just reading one page a day. So, we'll probably do that book in January. But one interesting quote was he, he said, if you were in Nazi Germany, what would you be doing? You're probably doing the same thing as you're doing now. So, if you think about all the things that are going around in the world and everything that's happening in, in your world, there's probably going to be 1% of people who are vocally fighting back. There's probably 10% of people who didn't vocally fight back but are finding some loopholes. But there's also probably 90% who are just going along with the herd. Mm-hmm.